Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, September 1st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Z is expected to skip next month's G20 summit. A deadly building fire in South Africa kills dozens. A new book claims Zelensky bombed his first meeting with Biden. The head of Gabon's Republican Guard is named interim leader. Trump is accused of inflating his net worth. Justice Thomas discloses donor-funded trips. Alabama seeks to prosecute those who aid out-of-state abortions. Meta reportedly modifies its moderation policy. China's Baidu launches its ChatGPT rival Ernie. And the U.S. proposes mandatory overtime for workers. In our first story, China's Z may skip the G20 summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Hindustan Times, the Hindu, the Times, the Times of India, the Independent, and Mint. Chinese President Xi Jinping is likely to miss the G20 summit in New Delhi, India, between September 9th and 10th, according to multiple anonymous government officials. While neither China nor India has officially commented on the matter, a senior Indian government official told Reuters that Chinese Premier Li Chang would represent the country instead. Russian President Vladimir Putin has already confirmed he will not be attending, with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov taking his place. So far this year, Xi has only traveled outside of China in order to visit Russia and South Africa. However, Xi notably met with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi this month at a BRICS summit and U.S. President Joe Biden at a previous G20 summit in November 2022 based in Bali. The news also comes as India and China continue to engage in a border dispute, with China's latest map also including the Indian northeastern state of Arunachal Pradesh. Territorial tensions along the Himalayan border between China and India culminated in skirmishes in 2020, leading to the death of 24 soldiers. It's believed that the next global summit Xi Jinping may attend could be the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Leaders Meeting in November. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa just nicely laid out the facts for us. Now we have an anti-China narrative from the print. It's up to India at the G20 summit to, with the help of the U.S., project its power in light of China's border claims and show that it is moving away from Chinese dependency. As both China and India continue to joust with one another, India must put its best foot forward and project itself at such an important event as a nation that must be respected in the same manner as any other global superpower. And here's the pro-China narrative from Topic. Although India and China remain at odds over several flashpoints, they're aligned on several key issues. The West, however, is quick to exaggerate any differences at the first sign of trouble. While ignoring its own differences with New Delhi, in order to polarize Beijing and contain its expanding influence, these deliberate disruptions will only hinder global cooperation. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 15% chance of a China-India war by the year 2035. Tragedy in Johannesburg as at least 74 are dead in a building fire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, ABC News, The Independent, BBC News, The Associated Press, and CNN. 
On Thursday, Johannesburg authorities announced that at least 74 people, including 12 children, have been found dead inside a five-story building that was ravaged by fire. The cause of the fire remains unclear. As search and rescue operations continue, the death toll is expected to rise. It's believed that up to 200 families were occupying the informal settlement. In inner-city areas, abandoned buildings, even some owned by the city, are, quote, hijacked as informal settlements. In most cases, those occupying the buildings are illegal immigrants and people who have migrated from other African countries. In addition to those killed, more than 50 people were injured as they attempted to escape the fast-moving fire. Residents were seen jumping from windows after tossing their children to bystanders standing below. According to the Johannesburg Emergency Management Services, the building was owned by the city and had previously leased to the Department of Social Development to be used as a women's shelter before becoming an informal settlement after the end of the lease. In response to the news of the deadly fire, South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, called it a great tragedy and a wake-up call to address housing in the inner city. Thank you, Scott, for those tragic facts. And here we'll start with an establishment critical narrative from Ground Up News. This fire is nothing short of tragic. These living conditions and vulnerabilities for the people of Johannesburg are not unique to this building. A large swath of the inner city population is impoverished and unable to afford safe and sanitary living accommodations. These systemic failures are fed by a government that refuses to act. Not only are officials allowing people to reside in unsafe conditions, but they are not providing an adequate amount of safe, regulated, and well-maintained housing solutions. And News 24 brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The city of Johannesburg is committed to ensuring that inner-city communities are safe and that people are living in conditions that are not harmful. The city has provided resources to seek out and investigate so-called hijacked properties. These investigations have been successful in their efforts and returned dozens of properties that were taken over by criminal elements to their rightful owners. This is an unspeakable tragedy, but there are efforts to improve the city one dilapidated building at a time. Melissa, you've sort of famously uh, a home improver in a, uh, a city with pretty stringent uh, permit laws and things like that. Have you ever had issues? Uh, America's so litigious that you can't get away with anything. A lot and a lot of it is for safety and like ADA yep. inclusion. But the permit office is backed up like two or three years on some of these issues. Wow. So trying to get something a little something fixed can take a long time. So, you know, I'd rather that than die in a fire. A new book claims Zelensky bombed his first meeting with Biden. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The White House, and NBC. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reportedly bombed his first meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House, according to a new book that will be released next week. According to a pre-release copy of Franklin Foer's The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future, obtained by The Guardian, Zelensky infuriated Biden in their September 2021 meeting. Coming five months before Ukraine's war with Russia would break out, the White House's official transcript of the meeting reported mutual declarations of respect and gratitude and included some of the policy aims the leaders discussed. However, according to Ford's account, there was considerable amounts of tension between the two presidents. 
Among the reasons provided was that Zelensky crammed his conversations with a long list of demands, including an insistence that Ukraine join NATO. Four writes, Zelensky's frustration occluded his capacity for logic. After begging to join NATO, he began to lecture that the organization is, in fact, a historic relic with waning significance. He told Biden that France and Germany were going to exit NATO. It was an absurd analysis and a blatant contradiction, and it pissed Biden off. The account of the meeting the account of the meeting is not the only time that tempers reportedly flared between Biden and Zelensky. Following a June 2021 call, sources who spoke to NBC News said that Biden lost his cool with Zelensky after the Ukrainian leader started to make additional demands shortly after Biden told him of a $1 billion assistance package he approved. Biden reportedly raised his voice and said Zelensky should show a little more gratitude. The White House itself brings us a pro-establishment narrative. Biden was delighted to welcome Zelensky to the White House. In the meeting, the U.S. reaffirmed its commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and international integrity, as well as supported Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic aspirations. And here's the establishment critical narrative from The Guardian. Biden's meeting with Zelensky was a disaster. The Ukrainian leader came with a long list of demands and started to lecture the U.S. president when he didn't get his way. It wasn't the best way to start off their relationship. And there's a nerd narrative from Attaculus predicting there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will join NATO before the year 2024. News from the Gabon coup. Nguema is named transitional president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Punch. France 24, Al-Arabia, the East African, Novanite.com, and Al Jazeera. On Wednesday, the head of Gabon's elite Republican Guard, General Brice Oligi Nguema, was named the interim leader of the Central African country shortly after military officers announced they had seized power. Nguema was unanimously appointed Gabon's transitional president, according to a TV statement by the coup leaders. They also announced maintaining a curfew imposed four days ago and allowing foreign francophone media to resume broadcasting in Gabon. Wednesday's coup came shortly after the country's National Election Authority announced that the incumbent president, President Ali Bongo Andimba, whose family ruled Gabon for 55 years, had won a third term in last week's disputed election. Calling themselves the Committee for Transition and the Restoration of Institutions, the coup leaders claimed the ballot was not transparent, credible, and inclusive, adding that irresponsible and unpredictable governance could plunge Gabon into chaos. According to the media watchdog Reporters Without Borders, foreign journalists had largely been restricted from covering the elections that were reportedly held without international observers. Meanwhile, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said on Thursday that the coup in Gabon and the coup in Niger can't be compared, as the latter's president was democratically elected, while in Gabon it was an institutional coup after the elections were stolen. Thank you, Scott, for those facts, and we'll begin this round of Narrative Spins with Narrative A from Le Monde. Doubts about the fairness of the elections in Gabon may be justified, but a military coup isn't a legitimate means of expressing political discontent. It's absurd for the putschists to claim they want to restore democracy by resorting to undemocratic means. After five coups in Africa in recent years, the one in Gabon is the latest indication of autocracy spreading across the continent. Recent events in Gabon and elsewhere in Africa don't bode well for the continent's political stability. 
and narrative B comes from African arguments. To claim that the coup in Gabon, following recent overthrows in several other African states, represents the return of dictators and an erosion of democracy is short-sighted. Like the former French colonies of Mali, Burkina Faso, or Niger, oil-rich Gabon was never truly a sovereign country, let alone a democracy. Instead, the events in Gabon are only the latest expression of an awakening continent that no longer wants to be exploited and subjected to political, economic, and military interference. And on this story, we have a narrative C from Global Research. While the coups in the former French African colonies are interpreted either as anti-democratic upheavals or as an expression of the struggle against neocolonialism, there is another dimension to the events. As in Niger, the U.S. decided it was time to push aside France to expand its influence in the resource-rich region, thereby attempting to contain China's and Russia's growing leverage more effectively. Trump is accused of inflating his net worth. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Guardian, The Hill, The Associated Press, and Forbes. On Wednesday, a court filing by New York Attorney General Letitia James' office as part of a $250 million civil fraud suit revealed that former President Donald Trump is accused of overstating his net worth by billions over the course of several years. According to James, Trump's net worth between 2011 and 2021 was never more than $2.6 billion, as opposed to his claims of being worth up to $6.1 billion. The suit, which accuses Trump of exaggerating his net worth by $2.2 billion in one of those years, alleges the former president's company knowingly manipulated the value of his assets in an attempt to skirt paying higher taxes and to improve insurance coverage. Also on Wednesday, Trump's lawyers released the 479-page transcript of a deposition taken in April, during which he called James' suit a, quote, terrible thing, while touting that his business was exceedingly successful and other successes from his presidency. James' filing requested the judge grant summary judgment on one of seven claims in the suit, that Trump and his company defrauded lenders and others by lying about his wealth and the value of his assets. Trump's lawyers have asked for the case to be dismissed. The case, which is scheduled to go to trial on October 2nd, also names Trump's two elder sons, Don Jr. and Eric, and the Trump Organization as co-defendants. The New York Times brings us the Democratic narrative. With all the indictments Trump is facing, it's easy to forget he's also facing this civil fraud case in which the evidence against him is overwhelming. Trump's fraud was blatant. And when he finally stopped invoking the Fifth Amendment and actually tried to make his case in his deposition, he could barely make a coherent argument in his own defense. The pro-Trump narrative comes from the Daily Caller. James' case is the flimsiest part of the Democrats' witch hunt against the former president in their attempts to stop him from winning the GOP nomination for 2024. No one was injured by this so-called fraud, and Trump had little to no involvement in his company's financial statements anyway. A civil case is just an excuse for James to up her political profile. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. Well, that went up. Yeah, it did. It was in the 30s for a while. Yeah. And that, then that mugshot came flip. out. Trump did that, like, I mean, that was couldn't have been more orchestrated, though, right? Like, that was what he was looking for? That must have been what he 
was trying to give off or maybe yeah. he was trying to give off like uh justice you know like this is unfair yeah i'm innocent it does yeah well well i i think it's almost like you know the the mona lisa quizzical look that like it kind of looks happy if you want it to and looks mad if you don't it's almost like uh, if you hate trump this looks bad if you like trump this looks good it's like you that see kind what of, you want to see yeah, yeah. exactly Clarence Thomas discloses trips paid for by a GOP donor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, CBS, USA Today, and Reuters. In a delayed financial disclosure, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas documented that he accepted three trips involving private flights paid for by Tennessee billionaire Harlan Crow. The trips funded by the GOP mega donor included a visit to an American Enterprise Institute event in Dallas, a trip to a Crow property in the Adirondack Mountains of New York, and an additional trip to Texas in February, all via a private jet. According to new disclosures, the financial report amended previous disclosures to include a real estate transaction between Justice Thomas and Crow in 2014. A lawyer for the justice said there had been no willful wrongdoing by the justice and that errors in reporting were strictly inadvertent. The disclosure comes as the U.S. Supreme Court faces criticism from Democratic politicians. In March 2023, the rules for financial disclosures were amended, forcing senior-level government officials to disclose travel via private jets and lodging at private resorts. Both Justices Thomas and Samuel Alito requested extensions for submitting their filings. The public anticipated the filing after ProPublica reported revealing several private jet and private yacht trips funded by Crow throughout his 25-year friendship with Thomas. In addition to the trips, ProPublica reported that Crow has funded two years of tuition for Justice Thomas's grandnephew to attend boarding schools. To improve the ethics requirements of the Supreme Court, Senate Democrats pushed and passed a bill in July that would require justices to adopt and adhere to a code of ethics. Republicans have refused to support the measure. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a Republican narrative from Newsweek. Democrats have relentlessly pursued the destruction of Justice Clarence Thomas's reputation. Questioning his ethics is just their latest attempt to display their hatred for who he is. Democrats strongly believe that a black man should not be a conservative and disagree with the outlandish demands of their party. As long as he remains true to his beliefs, he will continue to be subject of their unabashed attacks. And the Democratic narrative comes from the Huffington Post. The recent reporting by ProPublica and now the financial disclosure clearly signal that it's time for an investigation into Justice Clarence Thomas and his unethical behavior. The Judicial Conference should complete a review and quickly refer this matter to the Justice Department. Justice Thomas continues to insult the intelligence of the public by saying he accidentally omitted critical information or believed it to be unnecessary for reporting. A full investigation by the DOJ is warranted. Alabama seeks to prosecute those who aid out-of-state abortions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the Associated Press, KITV Island News, the Alabama Reflector, and Alabama.com. According to a court filing by Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall, the state has the authority to prosecute those who help women leave Alabama for out-of-state abortions. Marshall submitted the filing asking a federal court to dismiss a lawsuit brought by pro-abortion advocacy groups, which claims that prosecuting people who help women travel for out-of-state abortions violates their constitutional rights. 
Marshall argues that aiding a woman's travel to circumvent Alabama's abortion laws could be considered criminal conspiracy and that the state has the power to prohibit any Alabama-based conduct that defies its abortion laws. However, the plaintiffs who filed their lawsuit on July 31st argue that Alabama doesn't have the authority to restrict travel accommodations for women seeking an abortion, just as other states cannot invalidate Alabama's laws. Following the Dobbs Supreme Court decision last year that overturned Roe v. Wade, Alabama banned abortions in nearly all instances. The American Civil Liberties Union and Yellowhammer Fund are leading the lawsuit against Alabama, and there will be a hearing on September 5th that will determine whether or not the case is thrown out. We have a left narrative spin on this story from Daily Kos. Alabama continues to show why it's one of the most oppressive states as its attorney general doubles down on his power to determine what a conspiracy is and punish those who help a woman travel out of the state to exercise her reproductive rights. Alabama cannot impose its anti-choice laws on other states or restrict people's movements. And here's the right narrative from KLRT. Despite claims to the contrary, Alabama has the legal authority to prosecute those who conspire to break its laws. Alabama isn't trying to enforce its laws in other states or restrict women's movements. It's simply targeting conspiracies to break the law within the state's borders. Alabama has rightly been at the forefront of protecting life and will continue to be. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, they say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before the year 2030. Meta modifies its dangerous organization's moderation policy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Unified News of India and The Intercept. According to a report published by The Intercept on Wednesday, social media giant Meta has admitted that its Dangerous Organizations and Individuals, or DOI, moderation policy was too strict, stating it would loosen its ban on controversial topics. The policy blacklisted thousands of people and groups it deemed dangerous, from terrorists and drug cartels to rebel armies and musical acts, and banned its users from engaging in praise, support, or representation of those included on the list. In 2022, a third-party audit commissioned by Meta claimed the policy violated the human rights of Palestinians by stifling political speech. According to the report, which cites an internal memo, the company now says mentioning DOI will be permitted so long as it falls into one of 11 discussion categories, such as peace and conflict resolution, humanitarian relief, humor, and journalism. Other categories include international agreements or treaties, local community services, and neutral and informative descriptions of DOI activity or behavior. However, posts regarding DOI will face deletion if they don't fit into one of the categories. The company reportedly said the onus is on the user to prove they've done so. Those were the facts, and we'll begin this round of spins with a left narrative from Meta's Transparency Center. While the policy should be modified to prevent wrapping insightful and positive content in the same box as pro-terrorism content, the goal of Meta's DOI list is still a virtuous one. There's no need to allow Facebook or Instagram users to bolster violent movements or governments, which makes DOI the perfect prevention policy. Referencing a DOI in order to condemn it is good, but the internet shouldn't be a wild west where murderers and warlords can preach their harmful rhetoric. And we have a right narrative from Intellectual Takeout. 
Meta's secret blacklist didn't just ban Palestinian freedom fighters, but specifically targeted conservative and majority white organizations. While it banned pro-Western civilization groups and men's rights groups, it allowed the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam to run free. Like it or not, Meta systematically condoned and even propagated violent rhetoric against one racial group, while simultaneously prohibiting them from defending themselves. China's Baidu rolls out their AI Ernie bot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, USA Today, Le Monde, the Bangkok Post, and Associated Press. The Chinese search giant Baidu rolled out its artificial intelligence-powered chatbot ErnieBot on Thursday. The release is a major development for China's technology sector as AI booms within the tech sector. Beijing issued new regulations for PRC AI developers earlier this month. The regulations are meant to increase competition while maintaining tight information controls. This is the first AI app available to China's domestic population and won't be available outside of the PRC. Baidu released a limited beta version of ErnieBot in March. With the release, CEO Robin Lee said the company would gain massive human feedback to improve the app at a swift pace. Ernie reportedly generates state-approved answers to sensitive inquiries, such as the status of Taiwan. On the issue, ErnieBot reportedly states, quote, Taiwan is part of the sacred territory of the People's Republic of China. China's sovereignty and territorial integrity cannot be violated or divided. ErnieBot rose to the top of Apple's iOS store in China for free apps by Thursday afternoon. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-China narrative from the Associated Press. After U.S. company OpenAI launched ChatGPT earlier this year, the race is on to develop generative artificial intelligence models. Beijing sees AI as a key industry to rival the U.S. and claims to become a global leader by 2030. The PRC is now officially a major player in the vibrant AI sector. And Le Monde brings us the anti-China narrative. ErnieBot is overtly parroting PRC talking points. Beijing's new regulations also include provisions for labeling AI-generated content and curtailing false and harmful information, offering state-approved answers to taboo questions. Service providers must also hand over their algorithms to the authorities if their software is viewed to have an impact on public opinion. This is a concerning development. The U.S. Department of Labor proposes expanded overtime eligibility. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Forbes, The New York Times, and PBS NewsHour. On Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Labor released a proposed rule that would offer mandatory overtime pay to 3.6 million salaried workers who make a minimum of approximately $55,000 per year. Currently, the minimum salary threshold is $35,500 which was set during the Trump administration in 2020. Although the rule establishes that any salaried employee making more than the set threshold is ineligible for overtime pay, it allows for the threshold to be reviewed and updated every three years to prevent a future erosion of overtime protections. Previously, the Obama administration in 2016 attempted to raise the cutoff for most salaried employees to $47,500 but a federal judge suspended that rule on the premise that the department didn't have legal authority to make such a drastic change. The new rule wouldn't take effect for months because it's subject to a public commentary period. 
Those were the facts on our final story today, and we will begin with the Democratic narrative from the Washington Post. The middle class needs to be rebuilt after it deteriorated under Trump, and this rule is a step toward raising wages for workers across numerous sectors nationwide. Millions of the nation's most vulnerable workers, including women, people of color, and workers without college degrees, stand to benefit in the immediate future, and when the rule is updated for inflation every three years. And Town Hall brings us the Republican narrative. The Biden administration is so desperate to pander to voters that it's willing to recycle a failed Obama policy, despite courts previously ruling the Department of Labor lacks the authority to implement it. Business leaders warn it will weaken an economy that's in the doldrums. This jives with Biden's past attempts at executive overreach and lackluster economic policy. Luckily, the courts can protect the American people from this ill-advised idea. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, September 1st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles a day from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity.